Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. The Cloud Pod is first in, first out. Happy Halloween, guys. Ooh. Happy Halloween. Trick or treat. I don't think there's any trick or treating this year. I think it's all tricks. Yeah. COVID. All the fun stuff. Uh, But, you know, that means that we're uh, almost into November, which means that reInvent is only 30 days away. So that's that's exciting, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) Three weeks of it, too. More more exciting than the change of daylight savings time. Yeah, not so excited (laughs) about that part. The same, same articles in the news. Should we get rid of daylight savings? Where did it come from? Why did we do it? I don't know. I just... Do you think they just do you think they just can those up and then like they just have them ready to go every day at savings time and they just change the scientists' names and the quotes from the scientists? <laughs> they're like, man, like, they're almost the same article every time. Yeah, that's, how, that's all we know is fake news because it's just the same articles. <laughs> Anyways, we have a uh, reinvent only a few weeks away. The rumor mill is spinning up. Amazon is still announcing things. They are not. They're still clearing the baffles. If I would uh, at this point, I think. So there's uh, quite a bit of news from them, uh, a little bit of news from GCP, and then Azure, you know, still kind of slow behind the behind the eight ball. I think Azure's having a tough time with work from home. I don't know if that's a Windows thing or just just Microsoft in general. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, it does seem that way. It's definitely slowed down since, you know, all the restrictions and, and public gathering. So it's interesting. I wonder if it is truly culture or I wonder if it's just roadmap. Be an interesting case study. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see kind of what they what they look at. You know, then they had so many problems with capacity, you know, early on. Maybe they've just focused on plumbing stuff and it's just like that's their priority right now, which is okay too. I don't there's nothing wrong with that. That's yeah. super cool. Maybe they're busy building all the services that they promised for Jedi that they didn't quite have. <laughs> or that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's always that scenario. They could announce those though as they come, right? You can, yeah, but if you promise that you already have him to win a Jedi contract, maybe you can't. Shouldn't but, announce them. <laughs> you shouldn't announce them. Uh, well, you know, Amazon had their biggest shopping day of the year. Well, after Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday, but that's uh, Amazon Prime Day 2020. The news apparently said this was the worst Prime Day ever, which, you know, we don't know until Amazon actually announces earnings later this week. But, you know, if it's the worst or the best, we don't know yet. We'll find out. But as usual, Jeff Barr wrote a blog post, as he always does, talking about how Amazon delivered Prime Day using AWS. And so it's always fun to take a quick look at it and just kind of gawk at these numbers and realize that none of our infrastructure is this complicated. <laughs> so, <laughs> or uh, expensive. <laughs> or is expensive, yes. So, you know, he, he highlighted four key ways that uh, AWS helped Amazon.com deliver Prime Day. The first one being Amazon Live and the interactive video service, which we talked about here on the show in the past. Infrastructure event management, which is a, a support tool. Storage and content delivery. So they apparently had live streams going on during Amazon Prime Day, which I did not know about or check out. But apparently Matt Granite was talking about a product uh, and why he was talking about that product. They would link up with a link to buy it right there in the middle of the video stream, all using the ISV or IVSK capability that we talked about on the show. So that's pretty cool and a great use case. I didn't even think about that use case when we talked about IVS, <laughs> that you'd have these interactive you know, chat dialog boxes and links that pop up while a live video stream is going on like you have on Twitch. Um, I never really considered the e-commerce con- thought, thought of it, but uh, you know, it makes perfect sense now that I see this use case. Like, oh, yeah, that's a... I, I watched it for a little while. And, and the t- technically, it's really cool, but it reminded me so much of QVC from like the late 1980s. I just I noped out of the whole thing and shut my browser. I didn't even log in to, to buy anything. <laughs> I, I, I did sort of think it had a bit of a QVC feel in the screenshots they had of it. And I was like, it does feel like, are you demoing to me? The, you know, but, uh, you know, I did buy a Roomba 
for uh, my Prime Day purchase. Uh, one of those really high-end machine learning ones that uh, Ben Kehoe talked to us about uh, and likes to talk about all the amazing Lambda stuff. So now I have a Roomba version of my house, actually. I was able to mark off rooms, and it's kind of cool. Neat. Uh, and knowing it's all powered by Amazon just makes it that much better for me. Still uh, so can't just, climb the stairs. <laughs> it does not climb stairs, uh, but it does empty <laughs> itself, which, you know, having had a Roomba before that took a terrible dump, a dive into the trash can in frustration for my wife, the fact that it empties itself is super helpful. Uh, but then also the fact that it learns it doesn't get stuck in the same places all the time, which the old one used to get stuck in the same place every day. What does it empty itself into? Oh, it has a it has a tower thing on the charger. And so basically it backs into it and it has a vacuum system that sucks the garbage out of the Roomba into this little other container that's bigger than the Roomba container. So you don't have to empty it as often. So you still have to empty that container. So it doesn't put it in the trash can for me, but you know, it's, it's vacuum better. cleaners all the way down. Yeah, it's just vacuum cleaners <laughs> and vacuum cleaners. But, you know, that was my, that was my Prime Day purchase. So there you go. Apparently, they had 1,200 live streams over the event and tens of thousands of chat messages on Amazon Live during Prime Day. They did leverage the Enterprise Support Infrastructure Event Management Service. For those of you who have enterprise support, this is something you get for free. Or if you have business support, this is something you can pay extra for. Uh, apparently, the TAMs created a 100% virtual control room because of social distancing via a combination of Slack and Chime video calling. And all the various teams participating in Prime Day were inside of Slack in a big way using Chime and to make sure they were keeping their systems up and running throughout the event, uh, which is, you know, the IM service is pretty great, especially if you're doing a big launch. These are great things to do. Or e-commerce, if Black Friday is coming up for you, or Cyber Monday, IAM might be a great opportunity if you're using AWS. Of course, but if you're a retailer using AWS, you, you, you probably aren't using AWS because you hate Amazon. DynamoDB sourced 16.4 trillion calls to the DynamoDB API, peaking at 80.1 million requests per second. Now, that's expensive. I did the math. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be good. <laughs> if they sustained the rate for a whole month, it would only cost them $4.5 million. That does not include storage because they didn't give us any storage information. That's just for the write units and read units. And that's just for one region too. So that works out for the 66 hours of prime days. It was $407,000 in DynamoDB costs multiplied by however many regions they had running in. So yeah, that's that's a lot of money. But don't forget, don't forget, the 25 right unit free tier that they obviously took advantage of. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I don't know if Amazon actually has a free tier because they technically paid for everything. <laughs> EBS apparently added 241 petabytes of storage and prep for Prime Day. The resulting fleet handled 6.2 trillion requests per day and transferred 563 petabytes per day of data uh, during the Prime Day event. That's a lot of data and a lot of bandwidth. Jonathan? I didn't work that out. My calculator <laughs> goes up to 11 digits. <laughs> <laughs> and then apparently CloudFront, of course, played an important role as always with 280 million HTTP requests per minute and a total of 450 billion requests across all the Amazon.com sites. Uh, so congratulations to the ops team and the dev teams at Amazon. That's a fantastic feat. Uh, using your own services and your own dog food in the biggest way possible. And then only to be surpassed potentially by Black Friday and Cyber Monday this year, uh, which are coming up very quickly. I wonder how that compares with a normal a normal day. Like, is it 10, 10 times the traffic, 50 times the traffic? Kind of curious. You should uh, at Jeff Barr and ask. I will. Yeah, you know, it brings up a good point with all this, all this potential revenue that AWS would be making if they spun it off, right? I, I mean, someone's got to calculate that in when they figure out what, AWS as a company would be worth if it were spun off. I mean, I guess, they can't guess, count that as revenue. Yeah, I guess Amazon could could write that off as a business expense. Would yeah, I mean, the company would just be worth more than we think. We mm. think we know what the numbers are now, but they're a lot higher because we're not including AWS's biggest customer. 
you'd be curious if they would decide to, you know, because at their scale, it doesn't make sense for them to pay a third party for managed services. You would wonder if they'd almost carve off their own cloud out of AWS cloud when they separate them out if they have to do that. We'll see what happens if that actually happens. But, you know, when I think it was going to happen, we're getting closer and closer, it feels like, since they just uh, just sued Google <laughs> for antitrust here in the States. So things might be getting a little more different for Facebook and uh, Amazon and Apple and everyone else. They have not been sued yet, but... Uh, you know, if, if Google is the first one, they're probably the most egregious uh, violator, followed quickly by Amazon in the top three, I think. And doesn't it kind of feel like they Amazon started AWS to sell their their extra resources when they're not running these prime days um, and they're not in the holiday season? And now, over time, it's kind of flipped where Amazon just sort of gets free burst for those because of the scale they've built at AWS. So their customers are paying for that. I mean, it's possible that that's a factor. You know, we never, no one's ever seen the narrative that they wrote to start the Amazon Web Services business. But, you know, the, the story that Werner Vogels told last year at reInvent to the Executive Summit was that, you know, the big starting place for this service was that you know, there were several companies that they were trying to get be partners of the Amazon store. And basically, you know, the challenge back in the early 2000s was that to start up a store partnership, you had to buy a bunch of infrastructure. And so the cost of infrastructure was a huge burden for partners to be able to deliver to Amazon.com as a um, selling marketplace or as a partner. And so, you know, they had a ton of really great ideas and search solutions go out of business because of, you know, there was no way to make money, really, and partially due to the large expense of hardware. So they basically, uh, you know, that was one of the impetuses of building Amazon Web Services was really around kind of helping provide a better foundation for their partners, which was kind of where they started, apparently. But I think it did rapidly grow outside of that use case. You know, one of the things you might be using in something like this massive uh, event is Amazon Global Accelerator, which is, of course, their Anycast service. Uh, This allows you to basically have a single URL that will dynamically move traffic to any region based on, you know, several different parameters using the Amazon backbone to do so. In the past, if you were using this, you had to basically have, uh, if your external destination ports were 80 and 443, they would have to be 80 and 443 on the endpoint. So you typically would have to put the Global Accelerator to a load balancer. Uh, otherwise, that would not work. But now you can apparently set that to any port you'd like. And so now they will map port 80 to 1080 or 1443, uh, whatever you're using. So that now makes it a little bit more capable to you know plug this into an EKS cluster or directly to a server uh, on the back end that's maybe using different ports. So it's kind of nice. Yeah, so it's good to have that flexibility. But I think there's there's probably more to the story than just giving people a little bit of flexibility. It's probably more about having containers also registering with Global Accelerator because, you know, those container ports are always high ports, the non-privileged ports. So I imagine there's, there's there'll be some an other announcement related to this, yeah. So those of you who have uh, you know, fully drinking the Kool-Aid of microservices, <laughs> you know, may be aware that uh, observability is difficult and the need to be able to scale large systems and effectively are always in motion those systems. And so whether serving web requests, processing streams, or data, or handling events, something is always happening in your distributed application. And at worldwide scale, looking at image requests or events is not always feasible, really killing the ability for traditional APMs or other things to work. And so there's been many, many companies like Honeycomb and others talking about telemetry. Uh, one of the main projects of the CNCF is the Open Telemetry Project. And so Amazon uh, is part of the Open Telemetry Project as part of the CNCF. And they are now releasing their version, which is AWS Distro for Open Telemetry. 
They're helping to define the standards for collection distributed traces and metrics. AWS Distro for OpenTelemetry is a secure and support distribution of the APIs, libraries, agents, and collectors defined in the OpenTelemetry specification. And one of the coolest features of their toolkit is that it has auto instrumentation for Java and eventually .NET and many other languages. The auto instrumentation agent identifies the frameworks and languages used by your application on mapping instruments them to collect forward metrics and traces. One of the key parts of the AWS Observability Collector, which runs in your environment, is that it leverages services like CloudWatch, X-Ray, Elasticsearch, and Open telemetry partners, such as AppDynamics and others. The AWS OTK, or they call it, or the Observability Token Kit, uh, can be launched as a sidecar or daemon set for EKS, ECS, or as an agent on EC2. And it does support multi-account applications, and you can control the sampling rates. Available now, and you can start using it today, in addition to the .NET and JavaScript support that they mentioned. Uh, they also plan to support Python, Ruby, Go, C++, Erlang, and Rust. So there you go. Uh, and they'll be doing a quarterly upgrade of this uh, tied to the CNCF uh, quarterly releases. It's cool. I like the little diagram they had showing all the data flowing into all of their own services with one little box on the right-hand side for, for all the partners that you could also integrate with, but but why would you at that point? But what I, what I have to say is first they came for my MongoDB and I did nothing. <laughs> then they came for Elasticsearch and I did nothing, but I don't really care about that one. <laughs> and then they came for New Relic and now there are no vendors left. <laughs> yeah. Just the security ones. Yeah. For now. For now. I love this this model, but I am sort of going to have to unlearn a bit to sort of really, truly like think about how to implement something like to, a true telemetry. It's an interesting turn in the field, and I, I look forward to see how it, how it goes, how it rolls out in the industry. But it is in my brain, like I'm still a very metrics and logging bound kind of guy. So it's, it's, it's a struggle. So I'm, I'm curious to see where this goes. There's a couple of tweets that, that Jeff Barr put into the blog post about his learning about observability. And one of them is a, a retweet by Charity Majors of a tweet from Kisley Verna where they said, observability is a study of the system in motion and debugging is about the system at rest, uh, which I had never really thought about either. And Charity said the same thing. She had not thought of it that way either, which I agree. That's, that's a great way to think about it. So you're observing the system in motion and doing what it's doing versus debugging, uh, which is typically when the system is off or you know you get a dump and you don't know what the state is always changing. So it's a it's really interesting use case. Um, I'm excited to see what this kind of builds out to be. Does this start driving more into X-Ray and more into some of the other CloudWatch Insights products they have, which are kind of APM-ish? Um, it'd be really interesting to see kind of what they continue to drive on this. I, I like the idea that you run this in your own account versus you know just a service. So it's a, the collector just runs in your accounts, and so you can have distributed of that across multiple accounts, or you can have centralized and that. That's all really great stuff. So glad to see. I'm thinking multi-account day one yeah. versus day 5,000. <laughs> so the other uh, challenge that you may have uh, with having a very large dispute application other than you can't observe it is that you typically need to leverage some form of async communication to decouple your components and simplify your scaling, as well as you know, reduce the blast radius of the changes so that when you screw one up, it doesn't take down the whole stack. Uh, and of course, making it easier to release new features quickly. And so two of the most common forms of async communications and services are typically SQS and SNS, uh, which are message queues and publish-subscribe buses, similar to PubSub, Hubbub, uh, and others. So SQS last year got support for first and first out queues, or FIFO queues, to help preserve the order in which messages are sent and received and to avoid messaging being processed more than once, which is great, except for we didn't also cover SNS. And now Amazon Today is changing that. So now you have FIFO support for SNS topics, uh, which provides strict messaging ordering and deduplicate message delivery to one or more subscribers. 
FIFO topics, manage ordering when you configure a message group and message group ID when publishing the message to a FIFO topic. AWS then delivers messages based on the sequence order, and you don't need to declare an advanced message group ID as any valuable work. If you don't have a logical distinction between messages, you can simply use the same message group ID for all and have a single group of ordered messages. And then you can enable the deduplication at the top level or by adding the deduplication ID to the messages that you publish. Uh, with message content dedupe, SNS uses a SHA-256 hash to generate a message deduplication ID using the body of the message. Uh, and you can process up to 300 transactions per second via your FIFO topic or FIFO queue. This is really neat. I actually have a use case for this because I was currently writing something in Python to, to track a bunch of work. And the problem is I, I, I cannot have uh, duplicated work items in the queue because that would just break things. It's Elasticsearch. But yeah, using something like SNS with uh, FIFO queues now and with deduplication, that's awesome because I can just put messages on the queue and have them pruned out automatically. That's That's really neat. Yeah, it's really great because, you know, the fact they're using SHA-256, that's a fantastic hash on uh, your data pile. The performance, though, only only 300 transactions a second is is tiny. I mean, I, and I guess it's expensive to coordinate ordering. Whereas, you know, if it's if it's an order, I guess you could just run lots of these systems in parallel to, to, to scale to whatever you need and they don't need to talk to each other. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea here is that you divide up to more topics and more queues. You know, maybe a queue per account or a queue per function or whatever it makes sense for your your process, and then you can kind of get around that transaction limit. But I assume that's a as most Amazon services have, they always have slow or low entry level points and scale up as they learn more about your customers. SQS by default is still three hundred requests per second as well, unless you send them in large batches to get you know. And so it is sort of it. That was I had this exact same thought, and I was like, it must be really expensive if they're limiting at that level. I still like a last in, first out queue. <laughs> <laughs> there is one of those, right? It's the memo, the spike on your desk that people yeah, exactly. stick the memos on. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I think about our log events, they, they all go into SQS queue, but we have to take them out. Well, well, I assume that they more or less come out in order of the in the same order they were put in, which means that if we have a backlog, then the backlog will persist for for days and days and days, and you won't get any new data. Whereas if it's last in, first out, then the older data stays at the back of the queue, but the new data still makes it through to the log system. Yeah, and it's big and I think also like warehouses. Yeah, I actually Googled yeah. uh, FIFO earlier, and I went on this down this rat's nest of you know accounting practices and uh, warehouse storage yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and <laughs> There are all kinds of fun things in uh, manufacturing control <laughs> for work in progress and and uh, inventory and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Introducing the new AWS Load Balancer Controller, which is really not that new. It's, it's a rename of the ALB Ingress Controller, which originally only supported ALBs. Uh, now that it supports both ALBs and NLBs, uh, they've renamed it to be more logical. The new controller enables you to simplify operations and save costs by sharing an application load balancer across multiple applications in your Kubernetes cluster, as well as using NLB to target pods running on AWS Fargate. Kubernetes apps often need to be exposed to external traffic, and the EKS customer is leveraging ELB to accomplish this task. And then they go on to talk about the performance and all the ability to scale to millions and millions of requests per second. So if you're looking for that ingress controller, it is no longer called that. It's now the AWS load balancer controller to break all of your automation. (laughs) (laughs) This is a huge ad though for EKS. I mean, this functionality has existed in ECS for quite a while with the dynamic port allocation. And this is a, it's a huge blocker when you, when you have to write like sort of, you know, ad hoc sort of orchestration outside of your Kubernetes launch in order to tie things together. And if you're, you know, you have to point 
you know, host-based target groups and, you know, running, running that in a virtual or with containers is never a good idea. So this is fantastic. It's a huge, huge win for everyone who's using EKS today. Yeah. Nobody wants to do this work either. There's, there's nothing differentiated in building that yourself. Well, a story that I missed the first time around, uh, it came with a took you. I looked at it. I said, that's not a story we're going to talk about on the show. Threw it in the garbage bin. Uh, then I went on the subreddit for AWS and I re- and people were talking about this exact feature and I realized, oh, we should actually talk about this. <laughs> so Amazon CloudFormation has increased limits on five service quotas, including template size, resources, parameters, mappings, and outputs. Uh, so basically what this means is that uh, previously you could only have a 450 kilobyte S3 object uh, for a template for CloudFormation. And if you put anything bigger than that, it, of course, wouldn't work. That's now been increased to one megabit. And it's been increased to one megabit because they've also increased the resource limit from 200 previously to now 500 uh, resources, parameters from 60 to 200, mappings from 100 to 200, and outputs from 60 to 200, which all sounds really, really great until you realize that this kind of bites you if you're trying to make smaller CloudFormation templates that don't require hours and hours to update properly. <laughs> so do be careful as you go to 500 resources is now that's a lot more things that had to be updated, deleted, or rolled forward or backwards as you're doing releases. And there is still a really good idea to break up your cloud formations and using stack sets and different methods to do that. Definitely take a look at a really hard look at this before you go to 500 resources. There are use cases that are valid. That's why they did this. But you know, if your idea was, oh, great, I don't have to split up my infrastructure from VPC and EC2 and RDS and all of the different files and different stacks, that's not what they're telling you to do here. They're just telling you continue to do that best practice. But now when you do need to have 500 servers <laughs> defined for an app, you can now do that as individual line items in a cloud formation or as you're generating, I'm assuming you're generating that through CDK. That's how that's going to work out for you. Yeah, I would think it's CDK that's driving this because who in their right mind would actually edit a, a whole a megabyte long JSON or, or YAML file in a text editor? It, it, this must be about automation of generation of those templates. Yeah, CDK, SAM, they all use that concept of automated cloud formation templates. Yeah, most people run into this problem typically when trying to do Lambda and CloudFormation because of the limit, because uh, you might have a very large Lambda package that you either couldn't ingest into the CloudFormation template to actually put onto your service. And so you had to kind of sideload it through S3 in a different way. It was kind of a pain. So again, those, those will still happen, but now you might not have it happen as soon. I actually ran into this while trying to like customize the input parameters. So, so you can sort of pretty them up and, and add descriptions and, and that. And so that used a lot of space making it user-friendly. So it was pretty uh, an interesting limit hit. That's how I found it the first time. Yeah, it makes it really nice to uh, use CloudFormation with a service catalog. When you put those nice descriptions in, it gives people options and it looks like a professional UI, unlike the regular CloudFormation console. Oh my goodness. Is that the first time somebody other than me said something nice about service catalog on this? I said it had a pretty UI. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's still terrible and should never be used. Let's yeah. not let's not get that confused. <laughs> yeah. No, it can make it can make just even even just the descriptions in CloudFormation can make your templates much nicer to distribute and and have people uh, adopt. I wish those didn't count in your limit. <laughs> so you could just you know if it's a comment and you mark it as a comment, it just won't count that as your part of your limit. That'd be nice. Yep. I was just trying to think of the ways I could abuse this now. They can have a whole megabyte. You could you could embed huge amounts of code in there, which I think is uh, it's it's convenient to do, but it's a nightmare for the formatting. Well, that's why you know that's why people stopped doing serverless code that way and moved to SAM and to serverless and all these other technologies because of that exact issue. It was not pretty. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. 
These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, let's move on to our friends down in Mountain View. First up for GCP this week is uh, you can now scale in at your own pace with the Compute Engine Autoscaler controls. GCP is introducing these new scaling controls for Compute Engine to let you limit the VM deletion rate of downscaling event with their autoscaler. Uh, this is for those people who uh, potentially you know, have an autoscaling rule that's incorrectly downscaling you and you now take out too much capacity and maybe uh, don't have enough capacity for the workload that you have. So to prevent you from making that terrible mathematical mistake, you can now say, I'd only like you to drop potentially a few nodes at a time. Uh, every 10 to 20 minutes versus uh, all the nodes I need you to drop at one time. So this is a scale in policy or scale out policy. Um, I, I actually don't know why. I, know, I think the name should be opposite with this, but scale out to me is reducing capacity and scale in to me is adding capacity, but apparently the cloud dis- disagreed with me. So that's okay. Uh, I disagree with you. <laughs> Do you? Everyone, uh, yeah. everyone seems to have uh, decided. Yeah, scale out versus scale up, right? Well, to me, scale out is adding horizontal servers. So to me, scaling out is, you know, you know, that's potentially something, but I don't know. It, it doesn't make sense in the auto scaling concept, I think. It's cloud. Nothing's ever named correctly. Yeah. Okay. Or it makes sense. I just blindly accept it. So that, that's, that's pretty nice. Uh, again, this is a feature that other clouds have had for a while. So glad to see this one get caught up on, uh, which is pretty nice. This is one of those things when you have like really super spiky load where it's hard to predict this this type of feature makes it a lot easier and a lot less dangerous to have, you know, auto scaling rules. And so this, you know, typically if you didn't have this before, you would have to basically, you know, over provision in order to deal with the spikes. And now you can sort of, you know, this normalizes those peaks across longer windows and it allows more control. So it's a big ad. It sounds it sounds simple. It sounds silly, but there's a lot of workloads that this is going to make a big difference in. Yeah, but, I mean, there's definitely you don't want to start scaling up, but then also start scaling down, you know, without giving any time for the transactions to really complete. So there, there's definitely ways to go really wrong in auto scaling, and so it's good to have these controls to kind of say I want to you know a safety net underneath my auto scaling group logic because if I do make a mistake, I don't want to take everything down in a really horrible way. Well, you can now improve security and governance in your PostgreSQL implementation on top of Cloud SQL, which is their managed database solution at Google. They're now integrating the Cloud IAM into Cloud SQL, as well as enabling the PostgreSQL Audit extension, or PG Audit, which is a great way to track different changes and different access patterns to your data. So basically, taking these two features together, you can now basically say, I have a Ryan IAM user who has access to these tables in uh, Postgres, you know, potentially salary data, employee data, etc. He can then uh, go query that data through his IAM credentials by a temporary token that he used to authenticate to Postgres. He can then get the data he needs from those tables and write a report or do whatever he wants to do with it. And then uh, the auditors can come back later and say, hey, Ryan, 
you queried those tables uh, the other day. What were you, what were you doing with that data? Then he has to now uh, answer that security question, <laughs> which is always great fun and, and always fun problems to deal with. So these are great for companies that are highly audited and have the need to basically deal with telling people who accessed data, when they accessed it, and why they accessed it. Uh, this is a great way to really simplify that use case. And so any integration with Cloud IAM uh, for SQL authorization is, is really great for temporary token access. Yeah, this would be a great enabler for uh, the likes of uh, people under HIPAA restrictions, financial establishments, that kind of thing. And we know that they're going after that type of business, the enterprise business like that. So, good. And Ryan, why were you accessing the payroll data again? Uh, no, no reason. No reason at all. <laughs> Nothing to see here. It's fine. It's fine. No more it's questions. Well, this week apparently was the Firebase conference, uh, Firebase Summit, uh, the fifth apparently uh, that they've had and held digitally. And for those of you who know what Firebase is, you're super excited about that and probably already know about all this news. For those of you who've not really been familiar with Firebase, Firebase is a service to help developers build apps for Android, iOS, and the web. Firebase has gained a Firebase authentication emulator to their set of emulators uh, to allow you to detect, uh, as well as an emulator to detect online presence extensions and a redesigned Firebase performance and monitoring dashboard and a data analysis tool. This is all really great stuff. And apparently this powers over 2.5 million apps uh, currently, up from 2 million last year and 1.5 million the year before, which is really quite uh, good. Big growth for sure. I mean, 2.5 million mobile apps, like that's, that's a lot of apps. <laughs> I don't think I could find all those apps in the app store. No. I was going to say, I think it feels like I have that many installed on my phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to uh, Azure, uh, they've had multiple new features for Azure VPN gateway now in public preview. These new features for VPNs, uh, for those of you who need more control, the first one is a high availability capability for radius servers. Uh, so this allows you to basically tell the VPN to authenticate against redundant radius servers. Uh, so the event that one radius server goes down, you can still get into your data center to fix the first one, hopefully before the second one fails. It's <laughs> great. You can now enable VPN over Express Route, uh, private peering, Express Route, of course, being their version of uh, Direct Connect. And then custom IPsec and Ike policies with the DPD timeouts. Something I've never heard of called a PIPA support for the BGP speaker, which I don't really know what that is, but maybe someone on the team here does. And then fully qualified domain name support for site-to-site VPNs. Thank you, Jesus. And session management and revocation for point-to-site VPN users. So you can uh, kill a session in progress from Ryan, who's accessing that payroll database again. So the, the APIPA addresses, the first time I, I learned about those was the uh, 2000 maybe, Windows 2000, when the Microsoft introduced um, link local addresses. It's the 169.254 address range, which the uh, network cards give themselves if there's nothing else on the network to give them an address. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with those. Many many a Windows box has been dead and staring at that IP and going, gosh darn it. Yep. Of course, the, other, the only other one I know about is the metadata endpoint on the EC2 instances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, linked local addressing, basically. Yeah, so I, I kind of got the PIPA part, but then the BGP speaker, I was I don't know what that is exactly. Do you know what that one is? No. Ah, perfect. So network person <laughs> out there who knows what this means, please let us know. We'd love to, love to know. Cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the best talent to build products better and faster. So whether you're an aspiring innovator looking to level up or a business harnessing the transformative power of the cloud, tech skills and cloud certifications have never been more important. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, practical hands-on labs in real-world cloud environments, and tools designed to help teams assess, build, and validate critical cloud skills. Most importantly, Cloud Academy stays agile, challenging you with new content, labs, and tons of features that ensure your skills stay relevant and everyone can level up. 
They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps, security, and programming languages. Cloud Academy is a cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take their word for it. Check out their reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. For a limited time, our listeners can lock in 50% off the monthly price for life. Just put in the coupon code CloudPod when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just cloud build expertise during this crazy time. Again, go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code CloudPod to lock in 50% off the monthly price. For those of you on Azure learning all about the amazing world of analytics, big data and machine learning, et cetera, uh, you, uh, of course, can get you started with the Azure Synapse Analytics tooling. And now they have a new knowledge center available through the Azure Synapse Studio, uh, which gives you the quick access to preloaded sample data and to streamline the process of getting started using for, uh, started for data professionals. Samples can be used immediately via several one-click tutorials that create everything needed. And one of the examples here in the Explore Sample Data with Spark tutorial, you can get easy access to an Apache Spark pool and use notebooks natively inside Synapse to analyze New York City yellow taxi data and customize visualizations of that data. Uh, this is possible as Azure Synapse unifies both SQL and Spark development within the same analytic scheme, uh, which is great because we talked about every time you start learning anything but SQL, you always come back to SQL uh, so that you can now use both of them in the Synapse tool. The synapses are firing. I, I can see it. <laughs> is that what that electrical smell is? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, I, this is uh, one of those great things for data scientists and data people who are trying to learn these things. They're great, have quick starts. And the Knowledge Center is quite powerful. I was playing with it earlier today and a couple of these little samples. They're uh, pretty nice. I definitely recommend it if you're in the space and want to learn more. And then uh, Microsoft is establishing its first data center region in Taiwan as part of a reimagined Taiwan initiative. Uh, Microsoft for the last several years has been investing very uh, a lot of money into Taiwan. And this Azure announcement will allow them to establish its first cloud data center region in Taiwan and a significant investment in local talent and development with the goal to provide digital skills for over 200,000 people in Taiwan by 2024. Uh, additionally, Microsoft is growing its Taiwan Asia Hardware Systems and Infrastructure Engineering Group, which will establish as Microsoft's Taiwan as a hub for innovation, design, and building advanced cloud software and hardware infrastructure, spanning AI, IoT, and edge solutions. Uh, Acer here has a quote. Acer is excited that Microsoft is establishing a data center region in Taiwan, and we look forward to furthering our partnership to help enterprises on their digital transformation path with cloud and smart technologies, fulfilling our mission and breaking barriers between people and technology, said Jason Chen, chairman and CEO of Acer. Then we also have a quote here from Ken Soon, the general manager of Microsoft Taiwan, who said, I'm confident that providing access to scalable, low latency and secure cloud services will equip Taiwan's public and private sectors with the latest AI and IoT technologies while meeting the highest cybersecurity, data residency and compliance standards. Building a world-class enterprise-grade cloud marks an important step toward the digitization of Taiwan's key industries. And Microsoft is committed to fueling innovation and economic growth in Taiwan as it transforms into the next Asian technology hub. Is China happy about it? <laughs> I mean, they already have Asia regions in China, right? Yeah, it's a, it was an interesting way to announce a new region, and you know, like I felt like they were selling me on the on this being a good idea a little bit as I read through this article, and I was a, you know, with the the testimonials and all the quotes, and I was so I, I guess I always you know of course having a region in that area makes a lot of sense for a lot of a lot of different reasons getting to the Middle East and getting out. So I was wondering what the sales job was all about. I felt like I was missing something. Having seen many of these announcements for you know the the Utah regions and other Google regions, they all typically have some type of quote from you know companies in that region who are going to take advantage of this cloud or may take advantage of this cloud region and how it enables this innovation. I think they're a little canned to me, <laughs> to be honest. You know, because they 
they sort of have the same feel to them. And, you know, like, okay, we need two or three tech companies who will say good things about being a cloud that's local. And then they'll typically find a government company, you know, who will say something about compliance and government resources. And then, you know, Microsoft, of course, will always have someone or Google or AWS. So they do sell you a little bit on the idea. And Microsoft has a much larger Microsoft Taiwan play that they're doing, which is just one small piece of. That's probably why you felt that sales job. Yeah. I mean, that was a lot of it was the whole, you know, reimagine Taiwan initiative, part of this larger thing. You know, I think that was a lot of that, that sort of, they set the context of that very early. Well, that is it for the main show. Peter, you would like to take us to the lightning round. Let's start with Amazon Redshift. Redshift announces support for Lambda user-defined functions and enables tokenization. Oh, you, you said user-defined functions. I was going to go with a UFO joke, but you ruined it by saying uh. it it's all good. UDFs, <laughs> also known as Lambda UDFs. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for the Lambda UFOs. It's just a token announcement. Just a token announcement. Just a token announcement. Amazon AppFlow supports importing custom dimensions and metrics from Google Analytics to Amazon S3. Because everyone loves to take the free Google Analytics service, take the data, shove it into Amazon S3, and then pay for it while you read, analyze all the same data Google already could have given you for free. Yes. Thank you for this one. Well, can we import metrics from Dimension X? Oh. AWS Shield now provides global and per account event summaries to all AWS customers. Uh, can you clarify if that's uh, the Shield, the DDoS, or Origin Shield, the CloudFront technology? <laughs> I would have to read a week the later. I'm still that. annoyed. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never mind. I changed mine. It's not fair. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. Amazon SNS now supports selecting the origination number when sending SMS messages. I mean, thank goodness my DoorDash number is going to come from the same number now versus thousands of numbers that text me that my order is now on my porch with contactless delivery. I just hope you can like use star 69 somehow and get that back through this. You know, I miss that functionality. Yeah. The days of VoIP have really ruined phone calls for me and SMS messages because <laughs> you can't block anything reliably anymore. They just keep switching numbers. It's awful. And they just call you like all the time now. My phone just, I just, I set it to not ring now. Yeah, same here actually. I get I get more, more spam calls than I get real calls, but I've still got an out of area area code for my cell phone and almost all the spam tries to trick me into thinking it's a local call an 813 number and so any 813 number unless it's my wife's who's also got an 813 number i don't bother answering it straight to voicemail yeah i have the same thing because i i still have a, a washington phone number from where i live there and i have the same same thing if i you know oh all of a sudden i have a seattle number calling me and i'm like yeah no one's calling me from there <laughs> yeah exactly i've noticed that even the, the not just the area code but the first three digits of my of my phone number are very frequently matched as well. Moving on, AWS app Mesh supports cross-account sharing of ACM private certificate authorities. Nothing is more secure and authoritative as something you share across multiple entities. I'm just looking forward to 200 accounts spending 75 cents per certificate. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just waiting for people to get confused where the the data went in the Mesh to begin with. It fell through the holes. Amazon RDS for Oracle supports managed disaster recovery with Oracle DataGuard physical standby database. Just proving that Amazon is committed to being the number one customer of Oracle forever with the most <laughs> expensive Oracle licensed BACP DR solution on the market today. I always read this as, you know, RDS for Oracle will, you know, it's based, they'll manage the disaster for you, which is nice because usually I have to create the disaster myself. Mm, yes. I'm just waiting for Amazon RDS database with Oracle compatibility. 
<laughs> it's not open source. I don't know if they can do that one, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the saddest thing about Oracle. You know, like Data Guard. You know, I've written Data Guard many, many times in past lives uh, where we used Oracle and we paid the bajillions of dollars for Oracle Rack and Data Guard and these things. These technologies are awesome. They are so good. Like Data Guard. Like there is no technology out there on the market that does BCP and automated DR testing and all the things Data Guard can do for you. There's no other product out there that does it at the level that Oracle does it. But the problem is that I had to pay Oracle so much money for it. And I had to deal with their predatory licensing practices and all of the BS that goes with being an Oracle customer that it's not worth it. I'd rather pay Ryan to write millions of lines of automation code manually <laughs> to uh, get not pay Oracle for that same service, which I, you know, and that's really the shame of Oracle, really, in my opinion, these days is the technology is not bad. It's just everything around the technology. It's so awful. People yeah, moving off, off out of spite. Also, I should be charging more money. <laughs> yes, <you should. laughs> and Ryan takes the point. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, that was pretty good. That might be a point. AWS Step Functions now supports Amazon Athena service integration. Because I want to wait for my Athena query to return for my Step Function to proceed forward. Great. Yeah, this is, you know, now I understand why they, they implemented that, you know, the, the longer timeouts for step functions in the state machine. There you go. Makes perfect <laughs> exactly. sense now. Yeah. Enough time. The other thing I was thinking, I was like, you know, this is maybe finally the right path for Athena because now what I can do is I can link uh, Lambda trigger when they update the CloudWatch or the CloudTrail specification so I can automatically update the Athena definition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they're going to change the tables directory every five minutes. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. <laughs> when they improve step functions performance, is it going to be like, hurry up and wait? It was on Kendra now supports custom data sources. Because they finally realized that the search engine needed some data from somewhere. Still doesn't have Confluence or any other you know, modern enterprise tools. But SharePoint, still rocking it. Announcing two new on-demand digital courses for GameTech. If only they had had this course out there before they killed the Crucible game that Amazon was developing. Maybe I'd had a better game. Oh, did they kill that? They killed Crucible. There's another one they have. There's a, an MMO they're still working on that's supposed to come out later that I already pre-ordered because I was tricked into it by Mike. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll buy this. And then, you know, then they canceled Crucible, and I was like, I'm going to get that money back. That's <laughs> how so this is going to work. There's another new digital course, Advanced Testing Practices Using AWS DevOps Tools. Who's into that? Which is just a really good way to accidentally make your DevOps people QA people. So, you know, <laughs> just one way to lose your Full DevOps stop. people, make them QA people. That's funny. I read this the other way, which is like, finally, some, we can just force them to write tests for their, their deployment codes. But now, now I like your answer better. <laughs> so lose all the QA people by trying to make them into DevOps people? No, no. You're, making, you're losing all your DevOps people, making them into QA people. That's how I see it. But you'll be able to, you know, replace all your DevOps people with those QA people. So it's a win-win. That's going to go well. We'll be fine. Uh, how about if we want to pause and resume workloads on i3, M5AD, and R5AD instances? With Amazon's EC2 hibernation. I, I'm almost going to rage at the, about this as much as Justin raged about the uh, Route 53 console. See, the only reason you choose i3, M5AD, or R5AD instances is because they have fast local disks. And if you actually read the press release, you can suspend the, the instance to disk. That's awesome. But you lose everything on the SSDs. That is not preserved. It's a complete waste of space. Like why, why would you want to s suspend an i3 instance with six terabytes of st local storage and not preserve the storage? 
complete nonsense. Wow. Yeah, that is. Imagine, that imagine somebody getting burned by that, thinking they could suspend their things to save some, save some money. Yeah, it makes zero sense whatsoever. The only thing I could think of would be, you know, sometimes you get caught in a spot where for some reason you have to do a decent amount of bootstrapping after you think you can't get in the AMI. And you you basically want to auto scale them without having to go through your bootstrap again. That's the only thing I can think of. Perhaps for some machine learning workloads when you don't really persist the Datron disk forever. It's just temporary yeah. temporary storage and then you can get rid of it. But but then But then why hibernate? I agree that case? someone's yeah. gonna get burned. Why even hibernate? Yeah, if you don't need it, just turn it off, bring it back. Well, as sad as that makes you, at least now you can customize your session manager shell environment with configurable shell profiles. Finally, I can have cow say when I log in using session manager, this is going to be rad. Until Amazon pisses off the bash licensing model and then forces you to use whatever Apple chose. <laughs> I just want SpongeBob's magic cunt shell. Do you think they support that? <laughs> is that one? <laughs> Awesome I mean, of course, you had to. I think you had to install these shells first on those servers if you have them. <laughs> I would think so. No, it's a good. It's a good feature because the first thing I do whenever I use session managers, the first thing I do is type bash so to get out of the, the regular shell. That wraps it up because that's the end of the page, and I never look past that page onto the next page. So there can't possibly <laughs> be any other items. Ryan, I really want you to make more money too, but Jonathan was just on his game tonight. Very enjoyable. Jonathan, I'm giving you the point. He did that homework in advance, which is always a winning strategy on the, the lightning round, which is always yeah. good. Well, you know, this time for us to tell you that reInvent is headed our way like a freight train. <laughs> it's coming only a little, about three or four weeks away. Well, there's a Thanksgiving in there too somewhere. So, you know, it's, it's about four weeks away at this point. By the time this episode gets dropped, it'll probably be two weeks away. So uh, if you have not signed up yet for Amazon reInvent Digital, uh, do go out to the AWS reInvent website you've always gone to every year for, for Vegas. And this time you just sign up for the free version. So you don't have to give them a credit card, which is super nice, unless you're doing some of the extra stuff. Uh, it's going to be three weeks of action-packed uh, announcements, apparently, according to Andy Jassy, who tweeted this week that he's going to do a live keynote so none of this pre-recorded stuff, which is really cool if he actually does that. I just hope that's not marketing. But uh, if it's really live, I'm, I'm super pumped for a live keynote you know, streamed over the web on um, maybe one of those new IVS uh, solutions or something else. So that's going to be really interesting. How will we know if it's live? I mean, I assume we'll know it's live if you're having live interaction with the chat room and the and you know things you're saying potentially like if you're you're voting on something or you're doing a poll and it pops up live on the slide you know so hopefully you'll know ups. but it may not be you never know but he promised it was live and if it's not live i'm going to i'm going to call him out on twitter that's my <laughs> commitment to you the listeners i do like that cuz there is something about the the pre-recorded ones that just feels a little I don't know. It's a little too polished or something. I'm not really sure what it is, but it's a bit rehearsed. It's definitely rehearsed. It's definitely edited, right? And there, you know, everything's curated. It just feels a little polished, a little too overdone. At first, I liked it at the beginning of 2020, and now I'm over it. So who knows? I can't be. I can't be satisfied. I was watching the uh, AMD Ignavi announcement, which is their new uh, video cards that they just came out with today, and it was not live, but it was. It was a good, they did a good job in their presentation. The, you know, all the, the showmanship of it being on a stage with lighting and all the things. So even though it was recorded in advance, uh, it was really nicely done and well produced. So there are ways to do the semi-live. I also think the Apple events have been quite well done, even though they're pre-recorded. 
as well that they've uh, because they're using the live stage they're using the real so it feels like you're actually watching a keynote versus i think it was sacha nadella who had you know he was like in his house in front of his you know a million dollar bookcase of books you know and all that kind of stuff and you know it's like yeah i can tell you're on a zoom call recording your zoom call for your keynote it just it doesn't have the same feel so I, I do appreciate the just a little bit of production quality into the the thing. Now I I would not mind if the Andy's house band does not show up uh, for his live keynote. But, uh, <laughs> you know. Unfortunately, they just yeah. Hopefully they can't figure out the video calls. Yeah, and then maybe you know maybe they they couldn't get out of their contract for the the Venetian. You know, so maybe it's just going to be Andy in front of a huge empty room. Yeah, doing his keynote <laughs> live with the house band. That'd be kind of awesome. I actually wouldn't mind that scenario either. That'd be kind of great. So there's there's all kinds of fun ways. So we'll we'll hopefully hear a little bit more uh, about things coming up very quickly for the three week reinvent at the end of the year. So we're like super excited. We will do live predictions. Well, not live predictions. We'll do predictions beforehand, and then we will maybe uh, maybe we'll figure out how to do a live show for the post reinvent we'll figure out how to stream that live to the web I, i'm it's my commitment to figure out how to do that between now and then so we will see if we can figure that out all right guys that is it for this week in cloud bye everybody no one can see you wave ryan it's just easier to wave he's got a face for radio <laughs> don't i yeah have a great week and that is the week in cloud we'd like to thank our sponsor foghorn consulting Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.